We are in this series talking about Jesus' discussions with skeptics. And we said last week there are lots of places to look in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to find these occasions where he interacts with people who just don't believe the claim that he is the Messiah. We're going to stay in Mark 2 for today's message, and we'll go to verse 13 as we look at him eating with sinners. Why does he eat with sinners? So this will be on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can turn there as well. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Nothing was more perplexing to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law than this practice of Jesus, where he ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. They often remark about it. A lot of things Jesus did got him into trouble. But this one, perhaps most of all. He loved these sinners, and they could see it. And it drove them crazy because the religious leaders despised and avoided these people with whom he was eating. There was a stark contrast between how they treated the tax collectors and sinners and how Jesus treated them. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This response of Jesus to the story is famous because when they accuse him of welcoming sinners, he tells the story of the lost sheep the 99 in the fold and the one who is gone, the lost coin, and finally the lost son, one of his two most famous parables, the prodigal son. Told in response to this accusation, he welcomes sinners. The son of man, Jesus said, came eating and drinking. You say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A woman came to anoint the feet of Jesus. She was known to be a sinful woman in that town. Jesus even says she had many sins. She began to wash his feet, and the Pharisee who had invited him to eat dinner with them said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. She had lived this sinful life 
and she anointed the feet of Jesus. She was likely a famous prostitute in that city who had come to faith and forgiveness through the preaching of Jesus. And the protest was, if he knew, he wouldn't let her touch him. In John 9, 24, the leaders and the teachers of the law say to the blind man, Jesus healed. Give glory to God. We know the truth. This man is a sinner. And so they culminate their discussion of sinners in actually calling Jesus a sinner. What kind of activity would account for such a label on another human being? What would you have to do for people to look over and say, that person is a sinner? Not speaking of them as we often do with people we have little problems with. Well, he's okay. He's a good guy. You know, we don't agree on everything. We don't see eye to eye. No. No grace. He's a sinner. They are sinners. There are two occupations that we know of in the New Testament where this term sinner is applied to those who are engaged in it. The first is tax collectors, and the second is prostitutes. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 21, 31, Truly I tell you, speaking to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Tax collectors and prostitutes, the consensus sinners in the land of Israel, enter the kingdom before the teachers of the law. No wonder they were upset at him. They look over and they see him eating in Levi's house, and he's got the tax collectors all around him. This is a real meal. It's not a play meal. It's a real dinner. Levi has invited his friends over. They are socializing. They are laughing. They are having fun together. They are sharing stories. They are listening to Jesus as he tells his stories. Jesus is the center of attention. And they look over and see him eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And they rise in protest. You don't eat with just anybody usually. Usually you eat with people that you know pretty well. And if you're going to invite somebody to eat with you, you kind of want to have a relationship with them. When you get to the table, you're not sure what they might do. You invite them over, maybe you're not sure what they'll wear, what they'll say, how they'll eat, what their customs are. Eating is a pretty intimate thing to do. In fact, it was eating together that became a problem in the early church. We just have different ways of coming around the table. I remember being in the high Andes Mountains in northern Peru, the guest of a man who gathered us around his table in his humble circumstances there. And as we were all gathered around the table eating, I heard this crunching behind me. I couldn't imagine what it was. And I turned around to see the host walking the perimeter of the crowd around the table holding a roasted quee guinea pig in his hand and he was breaking through the skull so he could eat the brains. I'm telling the truth man. Some of you are looking at me in disbelief. And to him it was usual practice. 
This was a real meal. These folks are coming together dressed as they usually dress, talking the way they usually talk, gathering around this table with Jesus in the middle. We've just been down at this table. The table is a common piece of furniture in the stories about Jesus. And in fact, the church of Jesus Christ has felt the need for these 2,000 years when they gather for worship to tug and pull and carry in a table. And it often sits in the middle of the worship center and would be through these thousands of years the most common piece of furniture in a Christian church. And it represents what Jesus loved, what he eagerly desired to do, gathering with his friends to eat. And before he left, he ordained this special meal that his followers were to enjoy together. And when a dispute arose in the early church about Gentiles coming to the table of remembrance and together celebrating the supper, the special meal with the Jews, the early church resolved that they would not create two different tables, one for Jews who had their own dietary laws and their practices and another for Gentiles. No. Instead, they said Jews and Gentiles will come together in the same house of worship and they'll gather around the same table of remembrance and they'll take the meal together because that's what Jesus wants them to do. This table belongs to Jesus. It is the Lord's table. You cannot choose who comes to this table. He does the choosing. And I warn you now, if you come to this table, you just be on alert. Jesus loves sinners. And he loves to eat with them. And he will invite who he wants to this table. And those who will may come. Whatever color, whatever race, Whatever language, whatever social standing or economic standing, they're invited to this table. And no pastor or deacon or follower of Jesus should stand between a believer in the table and say, you're not welcome here because you don't fit in the category. That would be to betray the Lord who himself is our peace and brought down the wall of division between us and in his own death upon the cross rendered us one in him. And so to respect the Lord Jesus is to say, I will come to this table and I will enjoy worship in the church of Jesus Christ with whoever he brings to sit at my elbow. The table does this interesting thing. It is not a pew or a couch. It circles you up, turns you toward one another so that you make eye contact and suddenly you are invited to converse with the people who are at the table because Jesus wants us to know 
that not only do we gather around this table of remembrance together, but we are brothers and sisters from whatever different walks we have. And it's a real meal. We who come to the table. It is Jesus' way. It is essential, Jesus, to gather the tax collectors and the sinners together and enjoy a meal with them. It's a real meal, and it's real love. Jesus loves these folks who are sinners. The scripture says he loved them. He came to seek and to save them. And they are real sinners. They're not make-believe sinners. They're not really nice people dressed up to look differently. They are real sinners, these folks who come to the table. Jesus, in fact, describes the woman who comes to Simon's house and anoints his feet with this alabaster jar of perfume. He says, she whose sins were many are forgiven. They are sinners in desperate need. They have broken the law of God. They sit at the seat of taxes and Matthew paid for the position of being a tax collector for Rome. That's what you did. You paid for the post and now he has to recover all the money that he paid for the post that he has. And once he recovers all the money he paid for the post, then he can keep everything else that's over and above that. And so the tax collectors became filthy rich. They were some of the richest people in the society and the most hated in that society. People despised the tax collectors. And Jesus calls one of them to follow him. He walks by the seat of customs, which Matthew bought with some sum. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And this despised tax collector rises out of that seat where he's made so much money, that seat that he bought so that he could take his own people's income. And he comes around that table on which have been stacked all those bills and the money that he made, all those coins stacked on that table. And he leaves that place that he purchased and he runs into the arms of Jesus. They are real sinners, these people, just like you and me. We too are real sinners in need of a Savior. Which of you would look back over the last day and say, you know, in word and deed and attitude and relationship and thought, I have not sinned today. Does anybody think they've lived a perfect day where they did not sin once? No evil thoughts invaded their heart, no envy, no jealousy, no covetousness came into their mind. Every word they said was pure and perfect. 
No, we would say almost every day, any time, in fact, when we bow our head, we can confess some sin. And if we bow our head in any day, at any place, something comes to mind that was not right about us. In fact, we are sinners almost hourly and perhaps perpetually. Every day we fall, we come short. That's who we are. And we resist sometimes the title of sinner. We want something more elaborate. And we say, no, we are saints. We're saved by the grace of God. And so we're saints now, and that's true. You are saints now. But James, Pastor James, calls his congregation sinners. And the fact is, John says, if you say, present tense, that you have no sin... You deceive yourself, and God's word is not in you. If you say present tense, whoever you are, you have no sin, you deceive yourself. I met a man once who told me up front that he had not sinned in seven years. (laughs) That's it, you know. I just wanted to laugh in his face. (laughs) You haven't sinned in seven years, you know. Maybe he was comatose. That, that, maybe that. Had not sinned in seven years. The only man that would make such a statement is somebody who did not know our holy, perfect God. To suppose that you are morally perfect like the Most High for seven years to maintain that level of perfection and suppose that is really true about you is delusion, John says. You deceive yourself. God's word is not in you. See, we are all the poor and needy. And the real love comes from people who know they are real sinners. And they understand the depth of their depravity and their bankruptcy morally. And when they get to the place where they understand that every day in all kinds of ways, my sin piles up high and tall. And I I start with a little and then there's a bunch My whole life is tainted by this disobedience against God and I have trouble ripping it out of my heart and my mind and I come back to God over and over with this same stuff. When you finally realize that you yourself are the chief of sinners, that's when you really get the privilege to love him like you ought. Because the scripture says of this woman, Jesus says, she who is forgiven much loves much. Your love for the Savior will always be meager. It'll just drip a little bit until you know what mercy and grace He extended to forgive you and make you His child. And if it's, it's little love because you feel you've done so well, it hardens your heart toward the sacrifice of the cross and Calvary and all that Christ did in paying for your sin. It's a real meal and it's real sinners gathered around that table and it's real love that Christ expresses for them. He loves them. He loved this woman of the streets who came in to wash his feet. And she responded by loving him back and repenting of her sin. And Jesus said her great love is an evidence that she has repented and turned from her sin. And now this love pours out of her 
because of the transformation that's occurred in her life. Real sinners experience the real love of the Savior, and they love him back. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Could you see yourself writing that song? Could you see yourself saying those words? Does it seem ridiculous to you? This love for the Savior that pours out of this man who writes this poem. My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, I love thee right now. Does it seem foolish to you? Have you ever encountered the amazing love of God? The depth of his grace and his mercy for you. Is it possible that these words could come from your heart? My Savior, I love you. I love you. Like the woman who fell at his feet and washed his feet with her tears. I love you. John so experienced the love of God. He styled himself the disciple Jesus loves. And love became such a theme that if you go to 1 John, his letter, it is full of the love of God. It's real love that Jesus has for sinners. It's like Jesus is putting it on a billboard. Janet and I were driving down the causeway south about to get on I-10. Some of you have seen this. And Janet turns to me and says, oh, look at this, look at this. There's a guy on a ladder with a spray paint, and he's, he's writing out, Jessica, will you marry me? <laughs> Have you seen that billboard? <laughs> I saw it as I was coming in I, this morning, and it looks like a guy's, I said, Janet, I think that's part of the billboard, all right? I, think, I don't think he's out there at 7 a.m. <laughs> this morning with his spray can. I think it's part of the, the billboard, because I saw him yesterday, <laughs> <All right? laughs> So I think he's there. But it it grabs you, gets your attention. Jessica, will you marry me? Wow, what a love story that is. And that's what Jesus is doing, man. He's he's putting this ladder on the billboard. He's sitting down with sinners. He's loving on them. He's inviting them to come. He's expressing his care for them. He's choosing one of these sinners to be his close disciple, Matthew. He's he's doing everything he can to convey to us he loves us. He loves sinners. He loves you. He loves you, though you may not even love yourself. And maybe you feel today that nobody loves you. I told a woman once that God loved her, and she said, why would God love me? Nobody's ever loved me. Somebody has loved you, loved you passionately and beyond your ability to comprehend. And the amazing thing is the great God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and he stoops down to look at us and he slips his hand under us and he lifts up the poor 
and the needy. He loved us so much that he sent his only son. This is love, not what you generate in your heart, not how you love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sin. Jesus' death upon the cross in our place, in our stead, by his wounds we are healed. He himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree. This is love. This is love. And this is true salvation. Zacchaeus climbed up in that tree. He was a tax collector. Everybody knew he stole from them. He was despised in that town. Jesus came under the tree, looked up there and said, Zacchaeus, come down here. I'm going to your house today. And a murmur went through the crowd. It was audible. It was visible. The crowd was distressed, disturbed and disappointed that Jesus the prophet would go to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, as he's climbing out of that tree, hears the protest of the mob. And when he gets down, he turns to Jesus and he said, If I've robbed anybody, I'm giving back four times. I wonder if somebody in that crowd didn't say, Yippee! Four times what that man took from me! I'm ready to get in line. And he said, And after that, half of everything I've got left, I'm going to give to the poor. And it was obvious that some repentance had happened to this man between the limb and the land. God was changing his heart. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to your house. Jesus said to that woman who wept at his feet, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. It's real salvation that he offers sinners like us. Some of you came looking, searching, hoping you could find a spiritual path. And what I want to say to you is, it's not you who does the looking. It's God. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And God's been looking for you your whole life. He's been pursuing you. God is after you. Maybe you've had this long quest, and this is part of your journey. And what I would say to you, the great God of this universe sent his son all the way from heaven down to this place. And now his spirit comes right up to you in this room, in this moment, to say to you, I love sinners. I came to seek and save them. And so I would advise you, do not seek the way. The way itself has come to you. Arise and walk. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming, filling this room with your spirit and your presence. Thank you for stooping down to see us here in our need and spiritual poverty. I pray for that one person who's had such a difficult time, the one who was the lowest and feels like the neediest that they would experience now 
the arms of God. I pray you would slip your hand underneath their life and lift them up. I pray for that woman in great distress who came to this room not knowing what to do. And that man who feels empty every day and needs some reason to get up in the morning. I pray for that teenager who's had thoughts of suicide and wondered if life was worth living. I pray for that older person who feels neglected and abandoned. And I pray, God, that you would slip your hand of mercy and grace under us and lift us today. God, we need you above all other things. We need you. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, this will be a great moment to just say to him in prayer, Lord, I need you. I know I'm a sinner, but I need you. I ask for your forgiveness. I want you in my life. I open my life to you as best I know how. Would you pray that prayer of repentance, receiving Christ? Maybe you've been a long ways away and you, like the prodigal, need to return. And it is your hour of decision. It is the moment for you. Lord, bring them home. God, do your work in us. We are ready to hear and obey. In Jesus' name we pray.